0: Hello. Welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we will be looking at Spring Day by Amy Lowell. I think that's how I pronounce her name. It might be Lowell or Lowell. I don't know. I'm But I'm going to say Amy Lowell and I know that might might mean that I'm like one of those annoying people that says David Bowie instead of David Bowie. So to any hardcore Amy Lowell fans or Lowell fans out there, I'm going to stick with I'm going to stick with Lowell. That sounds halfway between Lowell and Lowell, doesn't it? Lowell. So I'll stick with that. Um, but I'm sorry if it makes your ears screech every time I say it. Those of you who aren't hardcore Amy Lowell fans, those of you who don't know who Amy Lowell is. We're at the modernist era now. We're at the very beginning of the modernist era, around 1912, 1911, 1912 onwards, Um, just before the First World War. Futurism is something that's happening across the pond in Italy. But our own sort of earliest modernist poetry movement in English is happening among British and American poets I think it starts off in London but many American poets are drawn into it from London as well as as well as poets from elsewhere the imagist movement that we'll look at in a bit more detail after we've read this poem um, included poets such as William Carlos Williams and Ezra Pound and Hilda Doolittle among many others and Amy Lowell was another one of these poets. She grew up in New England, I think, in, in, in the States in America, and um was very fond of poetry. She she went to some good schools, she came from a very wealthy background. But then she educated herself. I think she had recourse much like Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Elizabeth who who we read about last week and Elizabeth Barrett Browning's um character in Aurora Lee, Um, She she had an access to a fantastic library and got to do loads of reading. She got very much into poetry. I think she released an initial collection of poems, like a lot of first collections. Well, at the time anyway, the poems were quite safe. Then she got wind of, of amazing things happening in Europe, modernism. And she got the then editor of Poetry Magazine to write an introductory Um, An introductory letter, so that she could go to London and meet Ezra Pound with this introductory letter. Why don't we have those anymore? Introductory letters, just something where you approach someone and you say, "Hello, I'm I'm here to meet you. I bring you this introductory letter from someone and an esteemed colleague that we both hold in high regard. Hopefully, this will be the beginning of a long and enduring and rewarding companionship." I don't know. She wouldn't have said that because she was American so already i'm getting it wrong um so what was imagism well i have a quote here and i think the, the quote really 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 gets to the principle of it it was a quote um oh that's right it was a quote from william carlos williams and i hope i get it right but uh, he basically said no ideas but in things no ideas in things so this movement of images poets not only did it embrace verse libra or free verse as we know it so poetry that isn't formal poetry that that isn't metrical poetry that doesn't rhyme as well poetry that uses other things in order to be considered as poetry um, not only is it three verse it it also sort of focuses on the image and it's very much a, a reaction Against, as all these poetry movements are it was a reaction against the sentimental and baroque excess excesses of the victorian poets so the poetry from the victorians hey we looked at elizabeth barrett browning last week but very dramatic poetry uh, very expressive poetry um, lots of adjectives lots of lots of Words that convey the emotion of a speaker. Um, Lots of delving into abstract concepts such as love. Um, And and the imagists wanted to get away from all of that. They wanted to pare things down. I'm not going to speak about this too much because I think I should just read the poem. What can I say about this poem? You're going to listen to this poem. You know you've been listening to poems after all these weeks and they've kind of sounded the same. A lot of the poems I've read have been in iambic pentameter apart from the ballad, the Trois Corbys. So So a lot of the poems that I have read out every week up until this point have have sounded very similar to each other in the sense of their meter. But now things have changed. Things are different. So what are we on the lookout for? Look out for just um, listen to this in the same way that you might listen to a piece of music in one sense, but maybe not a piece of music that is that has a very regular rhythm, a piece of music that was a bit more improvisational, maybe something like jazz, maybe some modern classical or some ambient music even in that respect. Listen out for, for more natural rhythms and but, but most of all, think about the images in this poem. Think about the presence of the mind of the author. Think about Think about little, sometimes little words that might rhyme with each other as well, but not in that end of the line um, metronomic way that we get from a lot of formal poetry. So I'm going to read this out and then we can talk about the life of Emilao. We We don't have to talk too much about the meaning of the poem because the language is conveyed in a language that we can understand. And it could even be argued, is there meant to be some deep meaning to the poem? We can go into that as well. We'll talk about the life of Amy Lau because she's a really interesting character. And then we'll go into detail just about the form itself, the poetry itself, um, free verse and prose poetry, whether prose can be considered poetry. And then, of course, I'm going to go off on one after that. So let's read the poem. The poem's a bit long, I should say, as well. I don't think it's going to be as, as as long as our little sojourn into the Augustans with um, Alexander Pope's essay and criticism, where I read the entire first chapter. Um, so so it's a prose poem. It's a bit longer than the other poems that we've read, but not as long as that one. But you won't feel, at least when you hear this poem, you know, you won't feel like I'm just going dee-da, 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 dee-da for, for 15 minutes like i was with alexander pope so you might you might find this a bit more of a pleasure to listen to not that alexander pope isn't a pleasure to listen to i just don't think that my reading of it did it justice hopefully i'll do this one a bit more justice spring day by amy lowell the day is fresh washed and fair and there is a smell of tulips and narcissus in the air The sunshine pours in at the bathroom window and bores through the water, in the bathtub, in lathes and planes of greenish-white. It cleaves the water into floors like a jewel and cracks it to bright light. Little spots of sunshine lie on the surface of the water and dance, dance, and their reflections wobble deliciously over the ceiling. A stir of my finger sets them whirring, reeling. I move a foot and the planes of light in the water jar. I lie back and laugh and let the green white water, the sun-floored beryl water flow over me. The day is almost too bright to bear. The green water covers me from the too bright day. I will lie here a while and play with the water and the sunspots. The sky is blue and high. A crow flaps by the window and there is a whiff of tulips and narcissus in the air. Breakfast Table In the fresh, washed sunlight, the breakfast table is decked and white. It offers itself in flat surrender, tendering tastes and smells and colours and metals and grains, and the white cloth falls over its side, draped and wide. Wheels of white glitter in the silver coffee pot, hot and spinning like Catherine wheels, they whirl and twirl, and my eyes begin to smart, the little white dazzling wheels prick them like darts. Placid and peaceful, the rolls of bread spread themselves in the sun to bask, a stack of butterpats, pyramidal, shout orange through the white, scream, flutter, call, yellow, yellow, yellow. Coffee steam rises in a stream, clouds the silver tea service with mist, and twists up into the sunlight, revolved, involuted, suspiring higher and higher, fluting in a thin spiral up the high blue sky. A crow flies by, and croaks at the coffee steam. The day is new and fair, with good smells in the air. Walk over the street the white clouds meet and shear away without touching. On the sidewalks boys are playing marbles. Glass marbles with amber and blue hearts roll together and part with a sweet clashing noise. The boys strike them with black and red striped the gates. The glass marbles spit crimson when they are hit and slip into the gutters under rushing brown water. I smell tulips and narcissus in the air but there are no flowers anywhere only white dust whipping up the street and a girl with a gay spring hat and blowing skirts the dust and the wind flirt at her ankles and her neat high-heeled patent leather shoes tap tap the little heels pat the pavement and the wind rustles among the flowers on her hat a watercart crawls slowly on the other side of the way it is green and gay with new paint and rumbles contentedly sprinkling clear water over the white dust clear zigzagging water which smells of tulips and narcissus the thickening branches make a pink grizzle against the blue sky whoop the clouds go dashing at each other and sheer away just in time. Whoop! And a man's hat careens down the street in front of the white dust, leaps into the branches of a tree, veers away and trundles ahead of the wind, jarring the sunlight into spokes of rose colour and green. A motor car cuts a sway through the bright air, sharp beaked, irresistible, shouting to the wind to make way. A glare of dust and sunshine tosses together behind it and settles down the sky is quiet and high and the morning is fair with fresh-washed air midday and afternoon swirl of crowded streets shock and recoil of traffic the stock still brick façade of an old church against which the waves of people lurch and withdraw flare of sunshine down side streets eddies of light in the windows of chemist shops with their blue gold purple jars darting colours far into the crowd loud bangs and tremors, murmurings out of high windows, whirring of machine belts, blurring of horses and motors, a quick spin and shudder of brakes on an electric car, and the jar of a church bell knocking against the metal blue of the sky. I am a piece of the town, a bit of blown dust, thrust along with the crowd, proud to feel the pavement under me reeling with feet. Feet tripping, skipping, lagging, dragging, plodding, doggedly, or springing up and advancing on firm elastic insteps. A boy is selling papers. I smell them clean and new from the press. They are fresh like the air and pungent as tulips and narcissus. The blue sky pales to lemon, and great tongues of gold blind the shop windows, putting out their contents in a flood of flame. Night and sleep. The day takes her ease in slippered yellow. Electric signs gleam out along the shop fronts, following each other. They grow and grow and blow into patterns of fire flowers as the sky fades. Trades scream in spots of light at the unruffled night. Twinkle jab snap that means a new play and over the way plop drop quiver is the sidelong sliver of a watchmaker's sign with its length on another street a gigantic mug of beer effervesces to the atmosphere over a tall building but the sky is high and has her own stars why should she heed ours i leave the city with speed wheels whirl to take me back to my trees and my quietness the breeze which blows with me is fresh washed and clean it has come but recently from the high sky there are no flowers in bloom yet but the earth of my garden smells of tulips and narcissus my room is tranquil and friendly out of the window i can see the distant city a band of twinkling gems little flower-heads with no stems I cannot see the beer glass, nor the letters of the restaurants and shops I passed. Now the signs blur, and altogether make the city glowing on a night of fine weather, like a garden stirring and blowing for the spring. The night is fresh, washed and fair, and there is a whiff of flowers in the air. Wrap me close, sheets of lavender, pour your blue and purple dreams into my ears. The breeze whispers at the shutters and mutters queer tales of old days And cobbled streets and youths leaping their horses down marble stairways Pale blue lavender, you are the colour of a sky when it is fresh, washed and fair I smell the stars, they are like tulips and narcissus I smell them in the air I really enjoyed reading that. I really enjoyed the music of that poem. There is definitely a deliberate list. This is this is not just a piece of prose. This is not something that's just been dashed out. This has been thought about. There are so many little internal rhymes. Internal rhymes, well... There can't even be internal rhymes because this is a prose poem. Internal rhyme normally means little rhymes that don't happen at the end of a line. This is a prose poem. If you follow the link in the description and bring this poem up, you'll see it's just a bunch of paragraphs. There are no line breaks. It is the word processor that decides where the lines end. I'm borrowing that from the Marxist literary critic Terry Eagleton. Some people would say that this doesn't make it a poem. It was said in one of the textbooks I use for teaching, um, which is um, Furnace and Bath Reading Poetry. I think it's called an introduction. I could be wrong. Sorry, Furnace and Bath, if I got that wrong. But I do remember them specifically saying that a prose poem is not a poem because it doesn't have line breaks. And that thing called the double pattern that I spoke about last week, which is the sort of logic of the lines that, contrasts with the grammatical logic of how the poem is written you know the 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 lines end in one place but the sentences might end in different places so there's this double logic of the grammatical pattern of the poem and then the metrical and linear pattern of the poem you don't get this in a prose poem so they argue that, that, that that essential ingredient of poetry does not Um, does not exist in a prose poem therefore it's not a poem they they would say something like it's just lyrical prose instead hey this is lyrical prose I still think it's a poem I mean why do I think it's a poem I'll tell you why because it has a bunch of characteristics that I recognize in other poems and that's the best I can do to say it's a poem It, it it does that thing Hey, I like to borrow from Emily Dickinson when she says when it went to paraphrase it phrase Emily Dickinson, when it makes me feel like the top of my head has been lifted off. It is a poem. And this made me feel especially reading it out loud with my own stupid voice. It made me feel like the top of my head was lifted off. Did that make you feel like that listening to it? I hope so. So there's the music of the poem. There is there is a subtle metrical quality to the poem. It's very modernist in its concerns as well. Um, it feels like a microcosm of the great modernist novel Ulysses by James Joyce, You know, the, the novel that takes place in the space of an entire day, but it's well over a thousand pages long. Whereas this is uh, long for a poem, but it's still a poem. It's still just a few paragraphs, but it goes a lot of places, doesn't it? And And so... It's modernist in that sense, but it's also modernist in the sense of of what it describes, how it describes it. Um, The rhythm of the poem, no, it's not metrical. We can't really call it meter. But the modernist poets, and especially the imagists who we'll, we'll look at in a more historical sense in a moment, speak about cadences instead. And cadences are those natural rhythms and melodies of human speech. And I do think that this poem captures and slightly accentuates and maybe even exaggerates the aspects of human speech. So firstly, when we look at this poem, there are definitely, just from the first line, the day is fresh, washed and fair, and there is a smell of tulips and narcissus in the air. We already get that, the little bits of, you know, fair and air rhyming. Um, I can't just glance over this poem (laughs) to try and find out all those little moments of, of, Um, of internal rhyme but there are little rhymes dotted all over the place little subtle rhymes you know um, in the beginning so so you get that rhyme in the first sentence in the next in of that paragraph or that set of little paragraphs the next paragraph breakfast table begins in the same way it says in the fresh washed sunlight the breakfast table is decked and white so again those little rhymes kicking things off Um, but things change a little bit more but what is it? What is it about this poem that also? So, so we, we already get this idea. We hear those little subtle rhythms and we hear those little subtle, subtle rhymes throughout the poem. It doesn't quite. Yes, it seems inspired by ordinary everyday vernacular speaking language, but it sounds a little bit different. It felt different reading it out. It, I, I, that's what I think makes it a poem. Dare I say that there is an ineffable quality to what I define as a poem, and this poem seems to hit it. Ineffable being, I know it, but I can't quite put my finger on it. So, we get these four phases, but it's the use of imagery as well. Um, whiteness is used in the poem, and of course, a, a crow comes along at some points. A, a crow pops in a couple of times in the poem. Now, how does this? How does this imagery work? I love the description of the bath at the beginning of the poem I love I love that idea I can't remember anyone else writing about the pleasure of looking up at the ripples of bath water on a bright day when you're in a bath and and the sun is shining through the window and it's catching on the ripples of the bath water and you're watching that watching those little patterns on the ceiling shimmy about and you can just do something as as slight as Amy Lowell does in this poem as moving a finger and it just sends little ripples and cascades across the bath it's amazing um I, uh, I, I I, can't think of any descriptions. Can you fit something like that into a sonnet? Can you fit something like that into a verse essay written in blank verse or heroic couplets? Is that freedom from using poetic form something that allows you to open up an image in that way? Um, the images are very important, but she never really sort of says like, I think most of us could look at the image of the crow and go, that's death, that is, isn't it? It's death. Death's poking his face in. We've always got to have death in a poem. And uh, there's the crow. There he is on time, arriving at the poem to remind us of our mortality with a good old throaty core or croak, I think. Uh, Yeah, he croaks in this poem. He croaks at the coffee. Death croaks at the coffee. But she doesn't have to say death. That deaf, a crow as death might even be a cliche, and Amy Lowell and the Imagists had their own idea of what a cliche was, but, 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 but still she's not going to say the crow is deaf she lets the image speak for itself it might not be deaf who knows all of the images in this poem speak for themselves there seems to be an effervescence in the poem like the uh, the glass of beer which when i first read it i thought was a real glass of beer but it's not it's like a it's like an advertising hoarding it's like a lit up um i don't know sort of uh, I don't know if it's a fluorescent light. I don't know if that was around at that time, but it's certainly a, a lit up advertising hoarding of an effervescent beer and how, um, the light is always playing a role in this poem, the light through the bathroom window. And then the light sort of spinning off the marbles in the street, and the white dust that's whirling about in the afternoon when she's on the street outside. But then there's the lights of the city, the lights of the city as they come on and the advertising hoardings as well. And, um, and of course, there's the smell as well, the smell of flowers and the smell of um, narcissus and tulips as well. Even though there are no narcissus and tulips anywhere, it's just something she can smell throughout the poem. So we get smells, we get the sounds, we get the onomatopoeia, we get the marbles smacking against each other. We get the um electric car. Now, I've got a feeling the electric car is a tram. I don't think they had those fancy smart cars back at the turn of the century. So you get the tram, you get the sounds of the streets, you get the sounds of, of people's heels tap tapping. So this is what we get. The image is everywhere. The image isn't just something visual, although there's a visual feast in this poem. We get smells, we get the tap tap tapping of things, we get the whirs, we get the croaks of the crows. We get all of these images Flying around, but there's never really that much of a commentary of the images, and anything the poet feels is always connected to these images it's never a sort of an abstract feeling of love or envy or jealousy or whatever the poet the poet is not dealing with these abstract concepts; they are always reacting to the things of the world, and it is the things in the world that are triggering the poet's response to things. I did say I wasn't going to go into too much detail about the poem. So that pretty much is the detail that I went into. I think it's such a plainly spoken poem. I think there are plenty of things you can delve into about the poem. But I would like to just talk in a more general sense about what imagism was. Just so that you can maybe read the poem again or listen to the poem without understanding of what's happening. Because I do think the imagists, um, they they left plenty of manifestos. And they left plenty of, of... of declarations of what their intent was it was a very modernist thing to write manifestos so we've looked already at the idea that they're 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 going against a couple of things they're going against the metronome the metronomic regularity of the formal poetry that preceded them but they're also going against the sort of baroque and sentimental quality of victorian poetry as well it's no coincidence that some of the poets we looked at who fell out of favour such as the metaphysical poets with their crazy images and the very calculating and intellectual and idea-driven neoclassical augustan poets such as alexander pope they fell out of favour in the time of the romantics and they fell out of favour in the time of the victorian poets but they they certainly are rediscovered and find a new audience Um, in modernism and modernism really turns against in some ways the romantics and turns against the victorians Um, the idea of the the importance of feeling feeling is sort of relegated and they're back to that looking at things themselves it could be because the world is transforming so quickly in the modern times as well you know electric lights and automobiles and all of these other things another group of artists and poets called the futurists fetishized this thing they fetishized um the the speed and the velocity and the sound of modernism and the technology whereas the imagists were slightly different they acknowledged it but they felt that there was something eternal and old about poetry that they had to acknowledge as well they were very keen on chinese and japanese poets and the use of the image in imagist poetry is very much inspired by haiku um, japanese haiku And um, even though Amy Lowell also translated Chinese poets such as Li Bai, um, the, 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 the Japanese form of a haiku really informed imagism because haiku is all about the image. A lot of Westerners think when they write a funny 17 syllable aphorism that it is a haiku. Buddy, it's not a haiku. I'm sorry same thing to my students it's not a haiku um it's not a haiku a haiku uses imagery a haiku particularly uses imagery that we associate with seasons or the changing of seasons and a haiku often takes two images and sort of puts them together in an interesting and dramatic way to create tension and very much more than finger counting a bunch of syllables for instance a lot of haiku when they're translated. The first thing they ditch is the 17 syllables. It's the least important thing. It's more about that meaningful murmur. It's more about those two images that are sometimes placed together and creating a contrast and a depth because they might not immediately be associated together. It's something to toss into someone's brain, let it tumble about for it and see what happens. Um, Tumble about for a bit, I should say, not tumble about for it. So I'm going to read a few excerpts of some imagist manifestos. You get this idea already. Again, no ideas, but in things. I will not write. So that's William Carlos Williams saying that an idea of I will not write about an abstract concept. I will not say love is death is or whatever i will look around my immediate environment at the world i will live in and i will see the real things that are around me and how those echo the sentiments and the ideas that i want to communicate and i will look for how those ideas emanate from those things themselves and i will bring that dazzling or that powerful quality of those things into the light there's certainly an idea of mindfulness going on here the idea of concentrating on what you're doing in your immediate environment which we are massively incapable of doing um what with these devilish little beaming lights Yeah, i wonder how amy lowell will have felt about people walking about with these beaming lights in their palms transferring ideas that are very much divorced from things into people's brains i wonder how she would have felt about that maybe we'll go into that one i'm wandering off on one but for now Let's just look at the, the the imagists themselves. It was a movement that ran from about 1912 to 1917. The originators were um poets such as Ezra Pound, William Carlos Williams, Amy Lowell, and Hilda Doolittle who was known as HD. This happens a lot when women would um would would would, uh, would, would abbreviate their names um to degenderize themselves so they could be taken more seriously. So here's a here's a few little things from the original. So there was a I think there was a book called Les Imagistes, which was the first anthology of Imagists, um, which I think Ezra Pound and a few others um, curated. And so here's just a, a three steps from their agreed manifesto from the introductions, and that is one, direct treatment of the thing, whether subjective or objective. Two. To use absolutely no word that does not contribute to the presentation, and three, as regarding rhythm, to compose in the sequence of the musical phrase, not in sequence of a metronome. So free verse wasn't about the metronome being of Dida da di da di da di da di da, iambic pentameter or whatever meter you want to, to look at. It is more about those subtle rhythms that you find in more modern music. I think Stephen Fry, I I still haven't read his book, The Ode Less Travelled, so I could be mischaracterizing him greatly. But I know that he was sort of quote mined from that book in the sense that he he said that he called free verse arse dribble and verse Libra and modern verse arse dribble uh, because he thought it, it lacked the musical qualities of metered verse and i think when he was saying that you see i could be misrepresenting him because i think i should read his stuff in context and we should all read his stuff in context but taking those as they were presented and acknowledging that that might not be right and acknowledging that even if stephen fry didn't mean it other people have meant it before the free verse isn't musical it's like someone who listens to a lot of marching band music um, listening to Miles Davis and going, "What the hell is this? <laughs> There's no rhythm to this. There is rhythm. It's just that, for want of a better terminology, your white ass ain't capable of getting it." Um, as I, I love the, the the great, um, was it Miles Davis? No, it wasn't. It was it was um, Louis Armstrong. When people asked what is jazz, and he said, "If you have to ask, you'll never know." You know, it's something you hear. You can't really formalize it. And I think it's the same with the rhythms that we find, the cadences that we find in free verse and prose poetry, and the poems written by the Imagists. So that's why that's the musical phrase rather than the metronome. Um, they also wrote a few a few a few don'ts as well. And um, and here this is where again from Pound's introduction, I believe that the proper and perfect symbol is the natural object. Now, that wasn't the only anthology of imagist poems. So Amy Lowell brought out another three anthologies of imagist poems. Now, some of the original imagists left. They became... they. Uh, Ezra Pound became a, a vorticist instead. instead. He also became a fascist. Um, so even though... I'm, I'm going to find one point in which I agree with Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound was just a... Uh, what we, I, you know, I mean, he was a fascist. So, it does it matter if I call him any other name after fascist? All those other names, they tend to, you tend to get free membership to all those other names as soon as you are a fascist. You know, you're a pillock as well. <laughs> you're if you're an enrolled fascist that gives you automatic enrollment to the pillock club as well. Pillock is sort of a foolish person. If you're listening from Cork, where my, a lot of my family live, I, you know, Langer is another term. If you're a fascist, you're automatically enrolled into the Langer's club as well. Just, you're an unpleasant person, basically. Um, so but but Ezra Pound and Ezra Pound wasn't there was a bit of a schism so when when other poets left Imagism Behind Amy Lowell kept it going for a few more years and to the point where Ezra Pound who I think was friends with Lowell at one point but there was a bit of a power struggle for who was the who was the leader of the Imagists and Amy Lowell ended up being the person who kept it going after Ezra Pound stepped away from it. Um, Ezra, Ezra Pound Mockingly called it Amy Jism afterwards, um, saying perhaps saying that Amy Lowell had turned it into her own thing or corrupted it, um, but doing it in a dismissive term. They were quite dismissive about her, I'm afraid. I'll talk a bit about her life because she's quite the character, but 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 I just want to get back into the aesthetics of Imagism and the and the manifestos that were written about it. So, Amy Lowell wrote a preface, I think, to the second second edition um, of Some Imagist Poets. I love the plain spokenness of it. She's almost sniffed out that continental pretentiousness of Les Imagistes. the first anthology, and just called this one Some Imagist Poets. And I like that. I like the plain spokenness of it. And I think this is echoed. She's finding a title that's like, no, let's get, we're getting rid of affectation everywhere now, especially in the titles of our anthologies. So let's read out her her little manifesto as it appears in her preface to some imagist poets one to use the language of common speech but to employ always the exact word not the nearly exact nor the merely decorative word two to create new rhythms as the expression of new moods, and not to copy old rhythms which merely echo old moods. We do not insist on free verse as the only method of writing poetry. We fight for it, as for a principle of liberty. We believe that the individuality of a poet may often be better expressed in free verse than in conventional forms. In poetry, a new cadence means a new idea. 3 to allow absolute freedom in the choice of subject. It is not good art to write badly about aeroplanes and automobiles. That's a pop at the futurists. It's a blatant pop at the futurists there. Anyway, back in. Nor is it necessarily bad art to write well about the past. We believe passionately in the artistic value of modern life, but we wish to point out that there is nothing so uninspiring nor old-fashioned as an aeroplane in the year 1911. such a cuss number four to present an image hence the name imagism. we are not a school of painters but we believe that poetry should render particulars exactly and not deal in vague generalities however magnificent and sonorous it is for this reason that we oppose the cosmic poet who seems to shirk the real difficulties of art Five, to produce poetry that is hard and clear, never blurred nor indefinite. Six, finally, most of us believe that concentration is of the very essence of poetry. There we go. Again, we get that idea. Now we get that idea that the language can't be too showy, it can't be too fancy, it can't be too decorative. Find the image, convey the image communicate it to the reader bring the world to life there are no ideas but in things do not bore people too much with your emotions always tie your emotional responses to the world that engendered those emotional responses don't use fancy adjectives before poems and sonorousness is really interesting sort of being slightly against sonorous if something sounds good but doesn't serve the image doesn't serve the communication of the image or the moment or if it distracts from this deep attention in which the poem is created then just get rid of it kill your darlings get rid of those fancy sounding highfalutin lines now as i said amy, amy Amy Lowell she had a lot of money, so it allowed her to finance the publication of the of these anthologies and I think part of the power struggle between her and and Ezra Pound was decided by her by by her financial clout. She spent a lot of money also buying up little autobiographical or little biographical artifacts of keats's life, and she spent a lot of her time working on a massive biography of keats and it is even said that this writing the work she did and she worked hard on this biography of keats the work she did um it's funny isn't it how i just kind of said these guys were against the romantic poets no she absolutely loved the romantic poets Um, so while some modernists went against ideas within romanticism Lau was still massively enthusiastic about them. So Lau collected all of, these, all of these items, spent a lot of money on these items of Keats's life so she could write the definitive biography of Keats. And it was well over a thousand pages long. It was a very long biography of Keats. And it got mixed a mixed reception as well. Um, the critical reception. People found that she made too many psychological inferences about Keats. There was a little bit too much mind reading going on. Other people enjoyed that part of it. Um, But this 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 biography of Keats took it out of her and it said that her eyesight suffered and she had many problems with her health anyway. Um, Some of the uh, pound and his buddies pound was such a piece of 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 excrement anyway. Um, Not to say that he didn't write some amazing poems. In fact I'll talk about the one thing I agree with Pound on in a minute about that, that I would disagree with Lowell about. But but they um but she also had a, a problem that, that, that made her put put on weight and, and so he called her hippopoto poetess, which is just disgusting. You know, just again, this is, these are the kind of things you have to expect from a fascist, unfortunately. That said, I think she could give it as good as she could take it. She's an interesting character. She was a gay woman. She wrote um, lots of poetry about the great muse of her life, her partner. Her muse was an actor called, she was called Ada Dwyer Russell. And she wrote many love poems to her. Um, I also like the thing which is that she also smoked, um, this is Amy Lowell, she smoked a lot of cigars as well. And I I like this idea of a cigar smoking gay woman. Uh, that's that's proper sort of flipping the bird to Freud there and so she was a character she could give it as as good as she could take it I think in that sense I will talk about one thing that she spoke about which was cliche so cliche I, one of my inspirations for starting this this podcast and I'll go back to this is that when I read a terrible article about a certain Shakespeare sonnet about how this sonnet was railing against cliche and cliche as a term, he—I mean—the poem wasn't railing against cliche at all, and I will—I will deal with that poem at a later date. But it wasn't—it wasn't about cliches because cliche really wasn't a thing. Um, it came from the name of a kind of a printing block um, that that's that printed out another thing that comes from a physical reality: stereotypes, and you know, so printing one thing after another and the printing block made a certain noise and that's how it got its name and uh, as a cliche but obviously um, cliche obviously means something that's tired something that's overproduced but it gets that idea then it gets its name from that particular printing block and it's not really used in reference to literature until the late 1800s and even then the way in which it used way in which it is used keeps on changing but I'm going to Look at Amy Lowell's idea of what a cliche was and Ezra Pound's idea of what a cliche was. And I find people mention cliches in both senses of the word. But I find myself, I have to say, I find myself on the subject of cliches and nothing else. I'm on the side of the fascist. So um, the fascist Ezra Pound, not fascists in general. They might have a less nuanced idea of what a cliche is. They tend to have less nuanced ideas about most things. Man, I'm on my soapbox right now, aren't I? Anyway. Off the soapbox, time before cliches. So, Lowell wrote about cliches saying, Here are all the old cliches. Doves grieving for their lost mates. Lost, uh, young lambs at play. Swallows who herald the sun. Winds that bluster. So, she's looking at particular subjects. Particular ideas, I guess. So, And I can understand she's guided by finding new ideas in the world that she lives in. And she finds these ideas to be tired tired tropes and a lot of people i've heard of a student reading at my open mic not one of my students someone else's students because I, w- I would have contradicted um their professor or their lecturer on this anyway but they said how oh i i, I was i was writing poems about stars but i was told stars are cliche and i felt there's something very wrong about that the idea of a, a subject being cliche so i i, I look at pounds definition And he differentiates cliché from the commonplace. So the commonplace isn't necessarily a bad thing. The stars are commonplace. You can still write about stars. It's fine. Um, But it's how you write about them that's important. So he calls the commonplace things that we all know and upon which we, for the most part, agree. Um, That said, we can proceed from that. which is So he's saying there's nothing wrong with that. But in his cantos, he has another little idea about poetry where he says... Make it new. And I think that's that's what I would agree with. If you write about the stars, you make it new. And that leads on to his idea of what the cliché is, which he says, the stock and stilted phraseology of the usual English verse as it has come down to us. The cliché is me saying something like tossed about like a rag doll, you know, um, a phrase that has been used many times and has lost all of its power to surprise an old metaphor it is too familiar the power of metaphor is is in the sudden shock of how it brings two unfamiliar things together but if it's an old saying that does this such as tossed about like a rag doll then you've heard it and it doesn't surprise you at all for me that's the cliche we should be weary of you know your eyes okay sparkle like stars i don't know something sparkles like stars yes that's a cliche but we can still write about stars Goodness me, we're getting new images of black holes sucking up stars like they're like it's spaghetti on a plate. Um, we can write about that. These are the new images invading our lives and entering our lives. And we cannot help but find meaning being projected from the ultimate devourer of meaningfulness and everything else. A black hole. Um, I am close to going off on one, so I'm going to bring it. I'm going to bring this bit to an end, I think. So cliche for me. Yes, it's a tired trope. It's not. Yeah, it's a tired turn of phrase. Maybe for me in literature and in poetry, anyway, it is not subject matter. With subject matter, you can always make it new. Uh, As always, I'm sure I've missed stuff out, but it's time. It's time for me to take my my uh, phone off the bookshelf and to summon the great orator. The great bard of the twenty by twenty squared circle of real poetry, the wrestling ring. It's time to you if you haven't listened to this podcast before, you have no idea what's going on. You know what? Listen to another one. I've explained it so many times. But let's just say that now is the point where I I I I, I step away from an a conventional academic reading or conventional wish academic reading. And it's time for me to wander off on one. All pretense at academic rigour has been jettisoned. I want to talk about the image. So I'm going to go off on one. About something that's sort of tangentially related to this. Um, I'm going to tell a little story just for 10 minutes. And then I'll leave you on your merry way after I've begged you to share the, co- the podcast. Um, with the world, to help it grow. But before that, I I, want to tell a little story about myself. It's sort of related to imagism. Um, Because it's something that really inspires me. That noise is a a fridge to my left, switching on, just in case you want to know. I'm not a robot. So there's a painting painted in 1937 by the Swiss sculptor Alberto Giacometti still life with an apple. You might know Alberto Giacometti is a modernist very much by his sculptures, these sculptures of these tall, lonesome figures that very much echo the hollow men of the poem by T.S. Eliot. I don't know if he was inspired by Eliot or not, but the idea of a city-dwelling human, the way they become this slight and weathered thing, um, the alienation of the modern condition. If you look at his sculptures, you'll know them. But there is something about this painting that really struck me so it's called um, still life with an apple there's a few of them but this is the this is the one I saw Um, when I was in my 20s and I'd studied art for, for my degree and I realized that I was no longer going to be a painter I was writing more poetry and the will to paint had just been academicized out of me unfortunately that's one of the things about academia it can you can go in there with your passion and it completely can completely destroy your passion for that thing for me that passion was painting and art and I very much stopped being an artist and then I saw this painting by Alberto Giacometti on the wall of the Royal Academy when I was in my 20s and sort of renegotiating where my life will go and throwing myself into this this new field of poetry instead but I still loved art and I still love art now and I still love looking at art. But after looking at all these sculptures, I looked up at this painting and this painting really blew me away. This painting really powerfully affected me and I didn't know why. And the painting is just this painting of a, of a desk, a bureau with two drawers and there's an apple sitting on top of it. And it's just very brown and gold and sort of beige and white, very warm colours. There's nothing too striking about it because I'm looking at it now and something struck me about this painting. There was something about the solidness of this painting. I don't know why, but there was, I could feel the weight and the heft, even though the lines are very evident. It's, it's, it, is, it is a modernist painting. And it's the kind of painting that could only have been painted by a sculptor. Someone who kind of understood the heft of things. And I found out he hadn't painted anything else. He hadn't painted for for over 10 years before he did this painting. It's a brilliant painting. I think it's an amazing painting. It's one of my favourite paintings. He'd been making sculptures. He made sure he'd been sketching and stuff, but he hadn't painted. And then he made this painting... And I think this is the kind of painting which is a painting of, of someone who's acquainted with things. I think the way that most people would have painted a still life would have been in two different ways if they were a painter. If they were going by um, impressionist principles, they would have thought about how the painting, that the apple on this bureau, it was more just a, about the play of light, light rebounding off the, the apple, light rebounding off the bureau, and the manifest, manifestation of light as the visual world. Whereas... Here it doesn't feel there's a heft to it. The other way another painter might have done it was was about the abstraction, the ideas of the apple. You know, they might have flattened the surface. They might, it could have been like a cubist painting, it could have been a painting by Matisse, where this, you know, would have been, been these simple colors, these blocks of color. Um, and more the idea of the apple as it appears perhaps simplified and flattened within the imagination. I don't know. But there's the sense of this painting, I just get this sense of a sculptor looking at the world, looking at the wood, looking at the apple sitting on it. And I think the way it, there, there seemed to be just so much meaning beaming from this painting that I didn't get from a lot of other paintings. And I think the reason why is because he knew the feel of the objects. It wasn't just them as a visual phenomena of light, and they it wasn't just them as a ghost of things in the imagination. he was really trying to paint the things in themselves, the things in their alien thingness. The things are things that exist in physical reality beyond human senses, even though there is no way we can speak of things meaning, meaningfully. As things that exist out of our senses. Because we can only know them through our senses. Even the instruments that we use to measure things. Still ultimately greet us in the realm of our senses. And so. I just think this painting gets that idea of the heft. The thingness. There's a sense of what that table is. You know. When the lights are off. When the door is closed. There's a sense of that alien other world. In this table. And the apple sat on top of it. Now that's the power I got from this painting. I think also I got th- th- there was some hope I had. Oh my goodness, he hadn't painted it for 10 years. If I don't paint for 10 years, I can paint just like this. Guess what? Spoiler alert, it never happened. But the inspiration I do take from this painting is that I remember thinking, I remember trying to inject so much meaning into my own poetry. But it was when I read sort of familiar poems, a lot of it was the poems of Wallace Stevens actually, In which you could communicate the idea of things and meaning would take care of itself. Um, The real skill is not to write about the meaning of life or to work out what the meaning of life is and then write about it. The real skill is to write about something as mundane as a table with an apple on top of it and make it feel like to the reader or the listener like it really is the meaning of life. Like something within this has solved the mystery of all things. I think that's where the skill comes from. Um, really having a look at something trusting your interpretation of it and then trying to write as faithfully the feelings that are engendered by that thing without losing that sense of the thing i'm really going off on one here aren't i so that's all i wanted to talk about i just wanted to talk about a painting because it's one of my favorite paintings it's also a painting that i sometimes i have two screensavers on my on my laptops and they're, they're, they're associated with different things in my life One is a picture of my my wife and my children, and for obvious reasons. You know, when I'm away from them, I want them in front of me because looking at them reminds me of the priorities I have in my own life and the the things that make me happy and the things that are important. But other times I choose this painting as my screensaver. I think it's because this painting is about the work. The desk is the thing that I sit down to to write the desk is where I sit down to really concentrate on my own ideas and my own writing or my own podcasts or whatever else I want to create and put in the world. And so it's a desk in that sense. But it's also a reminder to be among things, to look at things, to, to really meet things in a way that their that their own meaning is being transmitted to me. I don't know. I love this painting. <laughs> so that's all I, I, I surround myself normally visually with this painting or with a picture of my, my, my wife and my children. Thank you for listening. You can help me by sharing this podcast. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm at that final stretch now. Please share this podcast. If you're listening to it on iTunes, please leave a nice review. If you hate this podcast, don't bother leaving a nasty review on iTunes, because that, that's just just, just... just No one's going to care about that. Get on Twitter to abuse me, yeah? Poet Niall, P O E T N I A W L Abuse me on Twitter. I will cheerfully engage with you if you do that um like like if you hated what i'm doing you'd listen to it this far actually i've hated people and i pay much attention to them because of it what else can you do you can share it share it on your social media you can say hello to me you can say nice things to me on twitter as well if you like at poet nile p-o-e-t-n-i-a-l-l and finally you can email me you can email me at rusty sonnets at gmail.com if you want to talk to me you know, about anything that anything you enjoy about the podcast, any critiques you might have a podcast, any directions you'd like to see the podcast go in or go, go to. I'll probably ignore that, but, but give it, give it a bash anyway. Next week, we'll be looking at a Harlem Renaissance poet. And then I think we'll just be dashing back through time at random junctures. I really wanted to just start things off with this little journey through all the poets, uh, through little eras of poetry. But now I want to start after the next week's poem, I want to start jumping about all over the place to all the poets that we've missed out and there won't be a logic of time to how one podcast follows another man that's enough from me hope you have a good weekend I'll see you next week with the next episode of Rusty Sonnets thank you so much for listening thank you so much for helping out and sharing it too have a good one bye bye